On today's episode, I answer the questions, how can I cut my cat's claws when he is becoming upset and aggressive? I answer, how can I stop my cat peeing outside his litter box and on my clothes instead? And also, why is my cat peeing on my couch and what can I do to stop it? I discuss, how can I treat my dog with skin allergies? I've moved and I'm wondering how to find a vet that is both honest and not too expensive. And finally, my cat grunts when relaxed and snores when sleeping. Should I be worried? But first, let's cue the music. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers Podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi, and welcome to episode number four of the Dr. Alex Answers Show. I'm Dr. Alex, the veterinarian behind rpetshealth.com, and my aim here is to answer all your questions and give you the information that you need to help you look after your pet to the best of your ability. I'm so grateful that you're here sharing your valuable time with me. And if we're meeting for the first time and you enjoy the show, then make sure to, that you're subscribed to the podcast for this weekly Q&A. You can also get your question answered just by heading over to dralexanswers.com. So let's jump into the first question, and that is, it's very hard to get a cat's claws cut as he's becoming upset and aggressive. For the last year, they've had to take the cat to their vet, but they insist on sedating the cat. And there's some concern with the sedation because he is a little bit overweight. um, And, you know, is it risky and is it not really necessary? Um, So, you know, let's break that down now. The first thing that we can do is just to reduce the stress of the build up to the vet visit. And we can do that in a number of ways by getting them used to the carrier. So that can involve just having the carrier out in the house normally. Actually feeding your cat in the carrier can make a big difference as well. You can go on short trips to get them used to being in the car. So just popping them in the car with the engine on to start with, um, then taking progressively longer journeys at the same time, giving them treats and, you know, having nothing nasty waiting for them at the end of that. So, you know, they're not going to a cattery, they're not going to the vet because that's one of the big problems is that cats are so used to only going somewhere they really don't want to be when they go in a car and they just don't get used to it. And they're not anticipating anything nice at the end of that. Um, also avoid long waits in the waiting room so you know make sure that you are not really early and also get there on time so that you don't miss your appointment and have to wait for the next available slot Um, equally when you get there and you're in the waiting room just keeping your cat off the ground and away from dogs can make a huge difference as well and then finally using the pheromone fell away or a supplementation like zilkeen can really just help them relax that little bit better as well and i discuss all of this in a post over on rpetshealth.com and in episode number 113 of the R Pets health podcast so definitely check those out if you're interested in hearing more of reducing the stress of a vet visit so next up is just reducing the stress of a, the nail clip itself and and it may be that actually although the cat is more relaxed when they get to the vet they're still really not happy to have their feet touched and their nails clipped so to prepare them for this we can potentially give them a medication to calm them down and that could be something like gabapentin or trazodone um, as just two examples they're things that are very safe to give um, and generally pretty effective at allowing minor procedures like this to happen now if there's no progress with this or if your vet doesn't seem comfortable doing this then consider trying to visit a fear-free certified veterinarian so this is a relatively new thing Um, there is a program called fear free which walks through the development of veterinary services that 
aims to avoid fear. We're not trying to force ourselves on our patient. We're trying to keep them happy at all times. So yeah, have a look and see if there's a fear-free certified veterinarian near you. Um, and you can also work on nail clipping at home. So, and you know, and even try and actually manage the nail clip yourself at home. So just trying a nail at a time. Now that sounds like not very much, but you know, if you're doing it slowly, then nails don't grow that quickly and that will be plenty to get you through you can try nail clippers just normal normal cat nail clippers there's a number of different types so try a few find ones that you're most comfortable handling with or you can even just try a nail file or an emery board so just gently i'm filing away at that nail again you don't have to do much and if it's done regularly and you're only doing you know one nail or two nails you know it's not a big job and it's something that you'll be able to keep on top of those nails and stop them becoming long in the first place you can also use Fellaway or Zilkeen um, or Bribe with treats, um, you know, like the Temptation treats, which all cats seem to absolutely love. Um, and the key as well, if we're trying these things, is stop before any anxiety is shown. So if we're leaving it until anxiety is shown, they've already got to the stage where they're stressed and, you know, that's going to be counterproductive. They're not going to help. You're not going to help them get over that fear or that discomfort and dislike of having their nails clipped. So try and stop before any anxiety is shown. Now, if despite all of these things, there is still very little improvement and you still need to take your cat to the vet, you can't do it at home, um, they're not able to manage it despite treatment strategies and, and management strategies to reduce that stress, then you know the safety of sedatives is normally very good. So yes, there is a risk with every sedation, every anaesthetic and pretty much every procedure that we do. But by and large, if there's no other major problems, then the risk of sedation is actually very low. And sure, being a little bit overweight does increase that risk, but you know, not substantially. And sedation is definitely better than trying to overpower a cat and try and get them to do what you want. And veterinary staff, they just can't be expected to compromise their safety because ultimately being bitten by a cat is not just part of the job. Um, it can ultimately lead to career threatening or career ending injuries. Certainly if you get bitten in a joint, then that can be terrible. I've certainly had um, known of nurses who have had a, a bite and they've ended up in hospital on intravenous antibiotics because they've got a horrendous cellulitis in their, in their hand going up their arm. So we can't expect that. And actually sedation in the long run, if we know that we're going to have to sedate a patient, then we don't have to handle them an awful lot before that is administered and actually for your cat it will result in lower stress for their visit as well so i hope that gives you a few ideas um, in managing an aggressive um, cat or a cat who's getting anxious and stressed by having their nails clipped to make it a little bit of a better experience for them you're listening to the dr alex answers show Okay, so next up, I've got two very similar questions. And the first is that the cat keeps going to the toilet on um, the owner's towels and clothes and inside some boxes trying to pee. You know, that hasn't happened previously. They've tried cleaning out his litter box, but he still won't go in the litter box. Um, you know, they're really worried about him and, and they also can't afford to go to the vet. And then the next question is about a cat that the owner's had for a year and a half. And for the last kind of three, four weeks or so, he started to pee on the couch um, next to the laundry room where his litter box is. Um, he would also pee in the litter box as well. The cat was taken to the vet. There was a suspected urinary tract infection. Um, the cat had a couple of different rounds of antibiotics and was then peeing more in his box and every few days on the couch. Um, but, you know, not 
curing and not eliminating that problem. Um, there seems to be some confusion whether it's a medical or psychological problem. And the suggestion is maybe to try another third round of antibiotics. And then if that doesn't work, hormonal injections. So, you know, what can we do? There's, is, is that really what needs to happen? Or are there any other things that we need to think about? So ultimately, both of these questions are about cats who are not peeing in their litter box. They're peeing over the furniture, which obviously is something that is super annoying. It's really disgusting. It's not great for your cat because they're not going to be happy doing that. And it's something we definitely need to get on top of. So you probably won't be surprised to hear that problem peeing is a super common problem. And there are some really important questions to consider before you can actually tackle the problem and with a view of getting rid of it. So the first thing is we need to discuss is, is the cat spraying or is there inappropriate urination going on? So what spraying is, it's a marking behavior and typically that is urinating against um, vertical surfaces. So um, they're backing up against, um, you know, maybe the side of a couch or against the bed or against the wall. They're lifting their tail. That's maybe twitching a little bit and urine is spraying out on that vertical surface. Now, inappropriate urination, on the other hand, um, typically involves um, squatting to pee like normal. So assuming a normal urinary um, urination position and then peeing on a horizontal surface. So it's not where you want them to, to be peeing, but it looks pretty much like they're peeing normally and so depending on what that is you know that's going to give an indication we also then need to rule out any underlying health problems and this is especially the case with inappropriate urination now cystitis is probably the most common um, and actually in the vast majority of cats this is not due to an infection so you know, very often we'll only give antibiotics when there is a positive urine culture result. So it definitely used to be that we used to give our cats a lot more antibiotics when they had a suspected um, UTI. Um, but really, we understand now that generally it's normally a stress response. That's the number one cause of cystitis-like symptoms, unlike people and unlike dogs who are much more likely to get a bacterial infection causing uh, cystitis, so causing straining, causing inappropriate urination, if you like. So it's normally stress-related, and we typically treat that with anti-inflammatories. Um, we in, try and increase the water intake, and there's a number of different ways that we can do that. We can modify the diet as well, um, and then there are a number of steps we can take to reduce stress, with stress being the number one cause of um, feline idiopathic cystitis, which is what we call it. And that can be uh, making sure there's enough resources, so food bowls, water bowls, and litter trays. There should be one more than the number of cats in the house. So if you've got three cats, there should be four separate food bowls, four water bowls, and four clean litter trays at all times. We can use a microchip cat flap to stop strange cats coming into the house. We can use um, the pheromone fell away, which I discussed in my previous answer. Um, we can give our cats a safe space where they can retreat if they're feeling uncomfortable, if they're feeling threatened. Um, so that's kind of stress. Other problems that underlying health problems that can also cause inappropriate urination can be um, arthritis. So if a cat's finding actually finding it difficult to get into the litter tray, especially if it's got a high lip, then arthritis can be a cause. Kidney disease, diabetes can also be causes because uh, they are just going to cause a cat to produce more urine. And so they're going to go ne need to go more often and potentially then get caught, caught out, caught short, not able to, to reach the litter tray when they need to go bladder stones can also cause this problem so there's a number of different things that we can think about there if you've got an entire cat then neutering your cat is going to help reduce inappropriate urination especially if we're talking about spraying here so if you've got an entire cat who is 
exhibiting marking behaviour, then neutering them really is what's going to need to happen to, to get that sorted and to reduce that and eliminate that as a problem. So reducing stress, like I've already discussed, is another step. Even if you don't think your cat's stressed, you know, they hide it so well. So having a little um, evaluation of, of different things that cause cats stress and trying to reduce those if at all possible. Litter box cleaning is also important. So cats can be very fussy when um, another cat has been in a litter tray and even if it's only a small amount they won't use it we need to look at litter box numbers like I say so one more than every cat some cats are really fussy when it comes to litter type so they might uh, not like a scented litter they might not like a clay-based litter because it clumps up underneath their feet and also location so litter tray should never be placed in a very busy thoroughfare they should always be placed kind of in private spots so that a cat can do its business without being observed which is something that's important to them and then finally um, we also need to clean up their urine their inappropriate urination properly so we can do that in a number of ways there are enzyme sprays that you can buy that will break down the urine and get rid of that problem what you can also do is you can take a biological washing powder, mix that with a little bit of water to make a solution and then let that soak in really well to the area where they've peed, where it will break down that urine and get rid of the problem. What we absolutely must do is avoid ammonia-based products because they will actually attract a cat back to that area and really accentuate and perpetuate the habit rather than curing it and, and eliminating it. Before we move on to the next question, this is the perfect time to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by the rpetshealth.com guide to solving problem peeing in cats. This is the free guide that helps you solve the problem of your cat peeing outside of their litter tray. Download it for free today. Simply head over to rpetshealth.com forward slash resources. Right. So question number four is all about food or environmental allergies so we've got a dog who the owner says either has food or environmental allergies so that's also known as a to p um, and they've been given giving him a specific diet to try and find out what foods he's allergic to but it's been really tough trying to pinpoint and find out exactly what that is and he's just flaring up constantly he's really uncomfortable and now he's got a lot of little bumps in between his paws um, and on top of his body that are causing him to be constantly itchy they're also using a shampoo but you know, results have yet to be seen. He's still really uncomfortable. The owners aren't enjoying seeing him in pain. I want to get to the bottom of his problem and find something that works. So to start with, you know, there's no mention of what's been done to diagnose the problem as allergies in the first place. So it's really important when we've got an itchy dog for any, you know, any apparent reason and with any particular lesions to rule out an underlying parasitic infection. So mites or fleas and fleas are incredibly common. Um, we also need to uh, rule out drug reactions, organ disease, um, which will often be done on history. Uh, we also need to rule out secondary bacterial or yeast infections. You know, so it really depends on the presentation. And there are a number of things that that we'll do when we're presented with these patients. We'll um, use a flea comb to brush their hair. It's surprising how common evidence of fleas being present is, you know, when they're not immediately visible with just a quick cursory look so hair brushing is important we take plucks of hairs as well and um, we can do skin scrapes um, and tape preps to look under the microscope for evidence of mites or bacterial or fungal disease um, we can also take biopsies we can run blood tests and we can also do treatment trials you know for example with um, parasitic parasitic anti-mite treatments um, you know there's a number of different things we, we can do and we should be doing to rule out some other things before we're jumping into the diagnosis of allergic 
allergic skin disease because ultimately not all itchy dogs are allergic and that's really important to consider so it might look like an allergy but it's important that we rule out some of the other more common problems first as well so once we are happy with that diagnosis of allergic skin disease, there are a number of things we can be allergic to. So the three ones that I really think of, we've got flea allergic dermatitis. We've then got atopic dermatitis. So that's an allergy to environmental factors. So things like pollens and dust and that kind of thing. And then we've got food allergies. Now, probably flea allergic dermatitis and atopic dermatitis are the most common, but food allergies is definitely something to think about and it is very often the case that uh, a dog who is allergic to one thing is also allergic to other things so when it comes to atopic dermatitis and also flea allergic dermatitis there is blood testing that we can do and that we can run to look at that or we can do something called intradermal skin testing which is where we inject little bits of of um, potential allergic compounds under the skin um, and see what the reaction is so that's something that's often done by um, a dermatologist but you know it may be that your your local vet will will offer that as well so you know we can do those things to try and find out what it is that an allergic dog is actually allergic to this doesn't actually work very well for dietary allergies though now there are some blood tests that are offered but i don't consider them to be super reliable so it's not really something that i consider as as an option in the majority of patients to find out if uh, a dog has has a food allergy we need to do something called a diet trial so food allergies they're most commonly due to the protein or the meat portion of the diet so that's generally your chicken your beef your pork or such and that's really despite what people may say because really allergic skin disease resulting from grains is actually pretty uncommon it is a thing but it's pretty uncommon and what a diet trial then involves is feeding a novel or a new single source of protein or a hydrolyzed diet and what a hydrolyzed diet is is where they've taken a uh, uh, chicken molecule for example and then broken it down into really small bits that the body doesn't recognize as chicken so that is effectively a novel protein that the body won't recognize and then won't react to so the diet that actually the owner mentioned that they've been feeding fits into neither of these categories. it's actually got lots of different proteins in it which is one of the selling points i mean it is grain free so great if um you know a dog is allergic to grains but like i say they're very much the minority now the difficult thing about about diet trials is that you must feed this single food for up to 12 weeks before a response is seen now typically it's seen a little bit sooner than that at maybe six to eight weeks but really we need to feed it for um 12 weeks before we can rule out a food allergy although sometimes you'll need to feed two different diets before you can rule it out completely but they must eat nothing else so if they get any other treats if they get anything else and that can ruin all of the good work so you can see that that's you know it can be really challenging that's three months worth of feeding one diet with no other treats no other snacks not picking anything up on off the street um you know so it's really tough to do that well now there are also, like I say, frequently also elements of atopic dermatitis in dogs that have a food allergy. And there are a number of different things that we can do that. The treatment of that is really varied and it can involve um, medications uh, like steroids or Apoquel or Cytopoint. It can involve shampooing. It can involve skin diets. So they're, they're slightly different to, to our hypoallergenic diets or our food trial diets, although they can be used as a skin diet as well, because that's ultimately what they're designed for. They're often a bit more expensive though so from that point of view they're not ideal as a maintenance diet just from cost alone um so yeah we can feed diets we can add 
fish oils or essential fatty acids to the diet as well that has an anti-inflammatory effect and improves the the skin barrier uh we can give antihistamines so some dogs will respond well to antihistamines others it makes no difference and others it causes sedation but that's certainly something to consider we definitely want to be giving parasite preventative products um we can try and avoid the allergies if at all possible so if you've had a blood test or if you've had the intradermal skin testing then we can try and avoid that that's generally pretty difficult but it may be if your dog's only allergic to one thing that's possible and then it's also possible that we can give a desensitization program so this is effectively a vaccination for what a dog is allergic to and that's something that will happen to us if we experience um, skin allergies or it potentially will happen to us then a dermatologist might give us a, a course of injections and that effectively is a vaccination against whatever it is we're allergic to and then one other big treatment of atp or atopic dermatitis or flea allergic dermatitis and 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 dietary allergies is to control flare-ups and secondary infections so whenever we've got a flare-up and a dog is becoming itchy and the skin is becoming inflamed then very often we get an overgrowth of the normal bacteria or yeast that are present that are present on the on the dog's skin so it's very important that we treat that because that will continue to cause itching even if we get the underlying allergy under control that infection will continue to cause itching so we need to treat that as well so at this point it's also worth saying that skin conditions and especially allergic skin disease it can be incredibly frustrating there's no one-size-fits-all approach it can involve a lot of playing around with a management plan to find out what works for that individual patient you know we could give everything that i've discussed and that would probably work but it would also cost a fortune it would be time consuming and difficult to to give all those medications in one go so we can we need to play around to find out what's the most effective way to manage this disease for each individual and so for that you're going to need to work closely with your vet and then finally if if your vet's really struggling if you're not getting anywhere then that's where referral to a, a specialist dermatologist is you know a really important step and one that's incredibly useful for those really itchy really allergic dogs that that don't seem to respond to anything okay so at this point it's important to remember that the information that i give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation and examination with your pet's veterinarian and should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet if your pet is unwell injured or suffering from any kind of problem then taking your pet to your vet and talking to your vet is always the best course of action get your question answered at dralexanswers.com Okay, so moving on to the next question. This one is sent in by somebody who's moved house. They need to get to a new vet and they're wondering how they can decide on choosing a vet who is both honest and also charges a reasonable rate. So I've got a couple of suggestions here. And the first one is just to ask your neighbourhood pet owners. So that can be when you're out on a walk. It can be on local Facebook groups, that kind of thing work colleagues as well you know talking to the people who live in the local area and finding out who they use why they've made that decision and who they recommend so google and online reviews in general is obviously another source of information but just bear in mind that any bad reviews are only ever tell one side of the story so as vets we're not actually allowed to answer that um, if there's a bad review and give an explanation or maybe explain why things weren't quite as the reviewer is reporting and so you know take things with a little pinch of salt equally if things are you know there's lots of good positive reviews and there's a couple of bad ones even if they're really really bad then you know it's likely that they're the exception and very often it's the case that you can tell when someone's got an axe to grind um 
right, the next step would be to call into the clinic that you're thinking of using just to chat to the reception staff to see if they offer the environment that you're looking for. You know, some people like more sterile, clean clinics. Others will prefer a more homely atmosphere. So it can't be expected that every clinic will please every person. So you need to find what's right for you. You can ask them the price of common procedures. So, you know, if you're looking for something that charges, um, you know, a lower rate compared to a higher rate, then, you know, that's one way of, of determining that. There are a couple of things to think about here, though. Um, the first is that some clinics will, for our routine procedures, they'll charge kind of very low rates. But when it comes to a pet being sick or having um, needing a, a, a bigger surgery, they charge an awful lot more than another clinic who maybe charges a little bit more for, for routine procedures. But then, yeah, they charge less. Now, that's something that's quite difficult to gauge, but something to consider as well. And also remember the that you often get what you pay for. And if there are significant differences in price, then you know it might be because the equipment used isn't up to date. It might be that certain steps that could be taken to improve safety are, are skipped. Um, it might be that the support staff, they're not qualified um, technicians or, or veterinary nurses. Um, and so they can be paid less. So there's all, you know, it, it, it can be quite difficult to think of um, price alone as a reflector of you know, quality um, or just shopping with price alone. So just be careful there. Um, and then the next thing to think about would be to schedule an initial review consultation so you can meet the vet um, and your vet can meet you and your pets. They can review the history and they can talk about what you are looking for in a vet. And that's very important. It lets them know what kind of veterinary care that you're wanting for your pets and to see if that's something that, um, you know, that they are able to provide. Um, with with re regard to honesty, though, you know, really rest assured that while in any profession there's going to be a few bad apples, the vast majority of vets, they're completely honest, they're trustworthy, and they really want nothing more than to help their patients remain healthy. You know, it just comes down to really whether there is a good match of personality uh, or whether there's a clash. So very often this actually has nothing to do with the standard of care given, um, but it's really important that you feel that you can trust your vet and also that your vet feels that, that they can trust you. So, you know, both parties being open, communicating well really is key for this. And then my final question on today's podcast episode is about a cat who grunts when he's breathing. He normally only does it when he's totally relaxed, almost asleep. Um, but he also grunts and then snores when he's in deep sleep. Otherwise, he seems fine. He exercises well. Um, he eats well. He toilets fine. Um, he goes outside on leash walks for three to four hours a day. Um, you know, so is this grunting and snoring something to be worried about? Also, he's a 10 kilo cat. Um, and described as a kind of standard short-haired cat. So to start with, I question whether, you know, he's actually obese. If he's a standard domestic short-haired, then 10 kilograms is is a huge weight to be. Um, you know, obviously there are some breeds of cats that are, are that big, uh, but definitely obesity is something that can cause this. Um, and if he is obese, then that can cause the airways to become narrow and that can cause noisy breathing and snoring. Also bearing in mind that an increased weight also increases the risk of arthritis, diabetes, skin disease and fatty liver or hepatic lipidosis in cats as well. So breathing noises can be an indicator that there is a problem with obesity, but there are a lot of other risks as well. Now, if he's not obese, is he actually a, a brachycephalic, so a kind of squash nose, short nose breeds like a Persian or a Himalayan or a Burmese? You know, these brachycephalic cats have as many problems as the brachycephalic dogs. And that's something I've discussed over on Our Pets Health. Um, and they can have narrow air, airways. They can have long, soft palates. Uh, their, their throat, their larynx can have abnormalities that mean that they 
create this noise and 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 it's a symptom of the the problem with the breathing and the narrow airway again and now if none of these are a problem and he is otherwise healthy as described then you know it's unlikely to be a problem just keep an eye out for other breathing changes and i would suggest that you take a video of your cat while he's snoring and while he's grunting um, just to show your vet next time that you visit because a video is a really powerful tool that we have to show changes that can be quite difficult to describe so there's some thoughts for there right so that's it for this episode of the podcast be sure to subscribe and if you have a spare couple of minutes i'd love it if you could share this episode with your friends and with your family or leave me a review over on itunes or at rpetshealth.com slash review to help more people discover this podcast it helps more than you can imagine and to allow me to help more pets but until next time take care you've been listening to the dr alex answers podcast be sure to rate review subscribe and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and dr alex answers